Well, John's writing the, this letter of his to, uh, and his second and third letters as well, of course, to those that he's converted over the years. And now he's getting older and he's writing to them because they're starting to break up. They're starting to lose their faith. They're being got at by false teachers. They're starting to turn into legalists. They're starting to go back to uh, Judaism, to the synagogue. And there's also the very big theme in his writings of the need for love. And oddly enough, he hammers away at two things which might at first blush appear to be somewhat uh, opposed to each other. One is love, the need for love, and the other is the, the crucial importance of correct understanding. He has quite a bit to say about false teachers and false understandings. Why those two themes? Well, they are related, because really the whole point of uh, theology, if you like, of, of true understanding and correct understanding of God and of his Son is so that it issues in a practical life. In fact, you could say that anything that, is, uh, that does not have any practical uh, result coming out of it is to some degree a waste of time, that it's nothing important. Whereas our understanding of the Lord Jesus is absolutely crucial. And it is this which John continually keeps bringing out as the, the motivating force in loving each other. And it is, of course, as we know, love which is the bottom line. But you can't force yourself, you can't will yourself by sort of psychological tricks to be more loving. What you can do is to allow yourself to be motivated by a true and valid relationship and experience of the Lord Jesus. And that is what will give you that love in practice, which we all ultimately seek. Because we just don't have the steel in our wills, as it were, to sort of make ourselves love. We, we don't have that. You can try and force yourself, but in the end one needs more than steel will to, to really love. Here in chapter 3, verse 6, he says, Whoever sins has not seen him, neither knows him. Now, John uses the idea of seeing not so much in a literal sense, but in the sense of perceiving and understanding. He who has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. Well, nobody literally saw God, and Jesus was not God himself. But those who perceived understood, believed in the Lord Jesus, understood, perceived and believed in God because Jesus was the complete manifestation of God in human flesh. So whoever keeps on sinning has simply not really known in an experiential sense, has not really personally believed into Jesus. Now he goes on in verse 13 to say, don't marvel if the world hates you. And yet he talks quite clearly in his letters about the very possibility that we might be hated by our brother. Verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer and doesn't have eternal life abiding within him. And then in chapter 4, verse 20, if a man hates his brother, he's a liar and he doesn't love God. So then we read there about the world hating you, and yet we also read about brethren hating brethren. Quite simply, if you hate your brother, you are in the world. And you know what John's like in his style. It's, in one sense, very black and white. 
you are either in Christ and in hope of the kingdom or you are not and he seems to be saying here well I don't think he seems to be I don't think it's any feat of uh, exegesis exactly to understand what's going on here if you do not love your brother if you hate your brother you're in the world and that's as simple as that and no matter what theological truths you may consider that you hold that is not going to save you really all the way through here John is saying that love of the brethren is the absolutely crucial issue that is the litmus test that is the ultimate decider and in verse 14 he says something that makes us take our breath a bit we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren he that loves not his brother abides in death now this passing from death to life I mean this is very black and white language Jesus says he that hears my word and believes him that sent me has eternal life and will not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life and I think that John is consciously alluding to his gospel here and he's saying that yeah okay I I wrote there and recorded that Jesus said that anyone who really hears his word and believes uh, in God and in Jesus has passed from death into life but he's saying let's put meaning into this word what does it mean to believe in Jesus it is not he's saying by implication an academic assent it is not ticking a box if you believe in Jesus uh, and in his word you will love your brother and it is loving your brother which means that you have passed from death under life he puts it a different way in John 5:24 when he says that if we hear his word and believe then we have passed from death to life and we have in that sense we are living the eternal life so then in what sense have we passed from death under life well he says in John 5:24 it's because we're living the eternal life that doesn't mean we will not die what it means is that we can live now the kind of life which we will eternally live the kingdom life and yet you know, here in 1 John 3:14, he's defining that in more sort of detail he's saying we love the brethren and that's how you know you've passed from death unto life so then believing in Christ and believing in his word and really hearing his word means you've passed from death under life uh, in John 5:24, here loving your brother means you've passed from death under life so it's not simply a case of in a worldly sense in a secular sense when I love my brother it's more than that because this is the love of the brother that arises out of believing in Jesus believing in him that sent him and in hearing or believing his word so then if we really believe the gospel we will love our brother and if you do not and if you hate your brother then you are living not the kind of life that you will eternally live and in one sense it's so simple it's so simple if you are living with hatred of your brother this is not the life that you will eternally live and therefore we have not passed from death under life now exactly how we define hating our brother is an open question I I openly admit to you that I feel strong anger at times with people who are brethren in Christ at least in name 
because of their behavior, their abuse, uh, etc. And how do we deal with this? And I, I'd be interested to hear from you, because the bottom line is, if we hate our brother, then we have not. We have not really been converted. We have not really believed in Christ. One observation I would make then is that our faith in Jesus is proportionate to our love or is related to our love. You know, Paul puts this by putting together faith, hope and love. We know that those three ideas come together in Paul and here in John I think in a more complex way it does the, the same three things come together. He's saying, and I keep saying, we're putting John 5.24 and here 1 John 3.14 together. John 5.24 says that if you believe, if you have faith in, uh, in Jesus, then you have eternal life. You have the hope of living eternally, the kind of life that you're living now. You will not come into judgment, he says, but you've passed from death unto life. You have hope. Whereas 1 John 3.14 says you've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. So faith, hope and love are still there, They're put together there. But what's the connection between those three things? I think that if we believe, really believe in Jesus, in the basic gospel, that he died for my sins and that now my sin is no longer a barrier between him and me, and therefore by my baptism into him I have identified with him and I will therefore for sure live eternally in his kingdom. We therefore have hope. Now, if really you believe that, not just tick boxes, but believe that to the point of feeling it, that we are going to live forever, that you are going to live forever, that really just try to focus on it forever and ever and ever and ever, not just existing as we are now, but on the highest possible level of, of fellowship with God and God's nature, and that this is going to be true for you and me, we who are sinners, we who definitely should not be there, we who are so poorly, weakly motivated, etc., but that this is true and this will happen, then you're overcome, I am overcome, and I think we all should, we, we all are, by a sense of love. No matter what you did to me, no matter what you did to me, I, I love you. Because I have been so loved. Or at very least, I do not hate you. All hatred goes out of the window. Now, as I said, as I alluded to earlier, whether that means that we do not have anger. I mean, anger is not a sin. I mean, Jesus was angry with the brethren of his day. Paul was angry with brethren. Um, but I don't think there was a hatred there. You've got to be very careful. It's, you know, let not the sun go down on your wrath. Um, You've got to be very careful because that anger so easily turns into hatred. Uh, it really is very easy for that to happen. So it's far better to say, just put away anger. Just uh, don't have it. But I think to some degree anger is almost a, a reaction that is almost as, as natural at times as uh, sneezing or blinking. Now, yeah, we can discuss this afterwards, but uh, the point is that if we really believe, if we have faith 
in the basics of the gospel and we can say that I hope for sure and I know for sure that by God's grace if the Lord comes right now I will be in his kingdom although I should not be I will be, I believe that and that is our hope and a sure hope, not hope in the sense of you know, a possibility, it might happen but a hope in the biblical sense of hope which really means expectation a confident expectation in that case you are swamped by this feeling of love I have been loved and I want to show that love to others and I will not hate you cannot hate if you are swamped by that sense of love the point is because we are weak psychologically weak and morally weak we we have to keep on refocusing ourselves on this reality and that's why the breaking of bread meeting is uh, so important because you know Jesus did not die in vain just to f- to focus us a little bit further um, on that certainty of salvation that experience of love verse 16 hereby know we love I'm reading from the RV this is how we know love because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren so then the definition of love is that he laid down his life for us now this Greek word translated laid down this is the word that's used about Jesus giving up his last breath when he breathed his last and it seems to me that he did not die um, just in one sense of natural causes he in a sense had control over the giving of his last breath in in that sense I mean he did I suppose die of natural causes in one sense but I mean that the, the giving of his last breath was from him and so he had he, what he knew was the last breath in his lungs and he breathed it out in the form of the words father into your hands I commend my spirit and that was it Um, he says of course in John 10 no one takes my life from me but I lay it down and this is the same word I lay it down of myself most people die against their will there is an inbuilt sense within us to struggle and fight for life and yet Jesus gave it of his own volition and it was not taken from him you might be aware of that Dylan Thomas poem about dying men <clears throat> that they go not uh, go not gentle into that good night but rage, rage against the dying of the light go not gentle into that good night but rage, rage against the dying of the light now <clears throat> that, that is how so many people die particularly a 33 year old like the Lord Jesus <clears throat> and yet he he didn't go that way he gave he gave his life so then <clears throat> there was a huge a huge self-control here when he actually gave up his last breath he laid down his life it's a, a huge achievement that he actually had control over the actual moment of his death and he gave his life for us and the the more scary thing is the next part of that verse uh, 16 and we ought and that's a poor translation although most of the versions have got it it's the this Greek word for must 
we must lay down our lives for the brethren. It's so tragic. All these versions you talk about we ought to, as if, well, yeah, we should do, but, you know, we don't. But anyway, we ought to. No, we must. This is the idea. They, we must lay down our lives. Same word, almost, I want to add, unfortunately, but it is for the brethren. So the point is, this is how we perceive love. And we live in a world that, of course, talks a lot about love, but they, they don't have the clue, the first clue, what love is. And we have the ultimate definition of love in, in the cross, which we're here to, to remember. And that this is why Paul keeps on and on, sorry, John keeps on and on, on about the importance of understanding that the Lord Jesus came in the flesh. That this was not a, an act. This was actually done by a real human being who had our nature just as much as, as you and me do. So you, you come to chapter 4, verse 2. You know, he's on about false prophets. And he says that, um, that the real difference is who confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh and who, who doesn't. That is why it is so important to understand his humanity, because as he laid down his life, gave his last breath as a human being, so we also are to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, if this was a a divine comet that sort of sped from outer space and hit this earth for 33 years and sped off again, if this was a Jesus, in a Trinitarian sense, acting out, uh, like a puppet. I mean, the whole thing is somewhat meaningless. The point is, as he was in this world, verse 17, as he is, even so are we in this world. But there is not to be a disconnect put between him and us, as if to say, well, that was him, that's okay, but not for me. Why is there so great enthusiasm to believe that, in fact, Jesus did not come in the flesh, that he was actually some God, and he was not fully human. Well, why is there this great propensity to believe that? In other words, why is a trinity so popular? And I think that any false doctrine, for the most part, has some psychological basis to it, because it's more attractive to believe that. Because if you believe that Jesus came in the flesh... This has a huge, huge implication for you and me, because never again can we blame our nature. I couldn't do that, I couldn't be so righteous, I had to sin because I'm only human. Once and for all, that argument is knocked right out of court, because Jesus was human and he had our flesh. And yet he achieved this perfection that he did within that flesh, and... As he is, so are we in this world. And of course it's exactly because of that that we accept that as son of man, he can legitimately be our judge. And I think this also opens a picture on uh, <clears throat> verse 16 and quite often here in John. We know and have believed the love which God has given to us. God is love and he that abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Um, <clears throat> God's love for us is really supremely in the fact that he gave his son. 
sorry, verse 14. We have beheld and bear witness that the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. Uh, and we know and have believed the love which God has to us. And we must abide in that same love. Now, the love of God here is defined as the fact that he gave his son. Now, let's just think about this a little bit. <clears throat> God existed from infinity. And yet, only 2,000 years ago, which is like a flash of, you know, less than a, a second of time, God gave his only begotten son. He had never had a son. This was his firstborn. Have you ever thought about that? That throughout the ages of eternity, it's not as if God tried all kind of systems of salvation with different people, different creatures, different, I don't know, existences on other planets, uh, always through giving a son. He may have had relationship with previous beings beforehand. He obviously did because of the angels. But um, he never sought to save through having a begotten son. This is God, as it were, as a first-timer. And he had a son um, who was a human. The son was not uh, a dog or a cat who came to save cats or a giraffe that came to save giraffes. He was a human who came to save humans. And out of all the huge amount of life forms which there are on this earth, he came to save just humans. And yet, out of all the millions, billions of humans there have been, he came to save, really, a minority of them. When you start to think of it that way, the fact that God, in the spectre of infinite time and space, should have an only begotten Son who died for people on this world so that people who had lived during a 6,000 year time span from Adam until now, which is a, a tiny little speck of time, uh, in order to save, well, how many people are going to be in the kingdom out of all the billions of people who lived from Adam until now? It's only going to be a minority. It's only going to be, well, I don't know, no idea. It's as many as the stars in the sky, relatively speaking, relative to Abraham childless at that time. But, uh, I mean, it's only, what, a billion? Uh, I don't know, I have no idea. A few billion? I don't know. But it's a fraction of the number of people who have ever lived from Adam until now. That, that's for sure. In Isaiah 62, verse 5, the love of God for us is likened to a young man marrying a virgin. The whole idea is first-timer. That, that's the image. That the God who existed from eternity is likened to this first-timer with all the intensity and joyful expectation and lack of disillusion that young man has as he marries a virgin. So the fact that Jesus did not pre-exist as a person and that he was Son of God, this reflects, as John perceives here in those verses we just read, the love of God. And so he says that our love is made perfect, verse 17, and we can have boldness in the day of judgment. 
we're told in Hebrews 4.16 that we can have boldness in prayer right now. And the connection, I think, is that if we really believe that we will be in God's kingdom by his grace, and if we've allowed that grace to really rid us of all hatred of our brethren, then we will have a boldness, a confidence before him in prayer, and in a sense to come before the throne of grace, as Hebrews 4.16 describes prayer. This is really the language of judgment. But every prayer in that sense is a foretaste of judgment. And so our experience in prayer now is in essence the experience we will have at the day of judgment. It's not that things will radically change at the day of judgment. We have a foretaste of what it's like to come before the day of judgment when you come before the throne of grace in prayer right now. And it's a throne of grace. Let's remember that. And you can have that boldness because you're in Christ. But here John is saying, well, you sort of have the boldness because you live in love. Um, you see verse 17 says, Out, because love is made perfect, we can have boldness in the day of judgment. Um, but he's described uh, earlier on, um, verse 11, verse 12, verse 10, really, the whole chapter, uh, that love is perfected in not hating your brother and in loving your brother. So it's that important. It really is. And that perfect love, verse 18, casts out fear. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has punishment or torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. When murderers are psychoanalyzed, it's very often found that they did what they did, not simply out of hatred, but out of fear. Fear of what the other guy might do. Fear what he might show them up to be. So fear is at the root of all lack of love and respect and hatred of our brethren. And I have observed in brethren who hate other brethren, and I have people who hate me, um, and I've seen a lot of hatred in, let, let's say, our community. Every single one of those people who I have known personally, not from a distance, but who I know personally, um, I have heard them admit, maybe in happier times of our relationship, or maybe they have a better relationship with me than they do with the, the one they hate, I have heard them admit that they are not at all certain that they will be in God's kingdom. And that means that their fear, their fear of rejection, their fear, their, their lack of certainty of God's grace, because they don't really believe, although they quote, know the truth, they don't actually believe it, because the truth is that you will be saved, and you will live forever, and God's forgiven you. That's the truth. That's the ultimate truth. Not, not all the ins and outs of the atonement and theory and stuff like that. That's the truth. And if you believe that, you will not fear. And if you don't have that fear, you will not hate your brother. You're secure in Christ. And I, again, I can testify this myself. I, I don't know why God tested me in this way in my life. And I had a lot of people who really had it in the neck for me. And they're all sort of religious people, most of them. And I do not hate them. And why? 
Not because I'm naive, not because I am the sort of person who lives in cloud cuckoo land and pretends I didn't notice, I'm quite the other way. But because I have a very definite sense that if Jesus comes now, by his grace, I will be saved. I really will be. And so I don't have that fear. And so I don't have that hatred, that lack of love to the most difficult of people. And I don't say, you know, I'm a good bloke. I'm just sharing with you. I'm just sharing with you uh, my, my situation, making my testimony. And this is what I wish for all of you. Fear is an awful thing. And psychologists have again noticed that actually there's something within human nature, the human psyche, that needs to fear, that wants to fear. Just look at the huge success of <clears throat> terror stories, movies, images, Stephen King novels, and the way the media realises that uh, their global audience laps up fear and sensationalism about terror. Why is the idea of a personal Satan figure so popular? But if we really have believed, and we are really sure that we have the hope of God's kingdom, that perfects or matures or brings to completion the love that casts out fear, that really casts out fear right at its root, that whatever happens, we are with the Lord, and we shall live forever with him in his kingdom. There is no fear in that love, and therefore this is all exactly in its theme, that we are to live in love. And not have that hatred of each other. But I don't think that you can get there by just steel will. I don't think you can go to a psychotherapist and have a series of sessions and you come out of it and you can love your brother. I've never seen that work. I've never seen psychotherapy uh, work to the end. I've seen it alleviate people's problems. But I have never seen it actually totally solve someone's anger or someone's hatred. Typically people say, well, I, I don't do it anymore. I don't indulge in anger and hatred because it's only destroying me. That may be so, but I, I, I don't think that that sort of selfish motive, which is what it is, I, I don't think that that eliminates fear, eliminates hate eliminates a lack of love and it certainly does not motivate positive proactive love of your enemy it does not do that because the only motivation really for the kind of love and lack of fear which is required if you are not going to hate your brother if you are going to love your brother you must not have fear and so you must have hope and from whence can you get hope The answer is in the bread and wine before us. That is the only source of hope in this world. That we really are cleansed of all our sin. And we really can be humbly confident that by his grace I will live forever. And so all fear is gone. And therefore we have found the key finally to love.